Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer and today we're going to be taking a look at the impact of the international trade in plastic waste. Just to give some idea of the scale of the problem, our latest report, The Truth Behind Trash, revealed that humans have, to date, produced a staggering 10 billion tonnes of plastic much of which is polluting the natural environment and is likely to continue to do so for hundreds if not thousands of years. Joining me are ocean campaigners Tom Gamage and Lauren Weir to talk about the problems of the plastic waste trade and why EIA believes the world urgently needs an international treaty to tackle plastic pollution. Tom, Lauren, welcome both and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Pleasure to be here Paul. Yes, thanks Paul. To start us off, perhaps you could give us a bird's eye snapshot of this trade, what it is and why it even happens in the first place. So the trade in plastic waste is, is exactly how it, how it sounds. You know, it's countries, which are generally the higher income, higher consuming countries, exporting their waste, uh, plastic waste to other countries, which are normally sort of lower or middle income. But to really understand the nature of this trade and what it's about, we have to sort of look a little bit further back in time to see how plastic as a material uh, has been produced and used and sort of how this has evolved through time. You know, so the first synthetic plastic bakelite was created in 1907. But I mean, originally plastics occupied a very limited market niche. Up until around the, the 1950s, plastics were precious commodities, uh, as, uh, as as was the case with silk or, or glass or ivory. Uh, they were used and treated carefully. But in just 65 years, plastic production has increased from a mere 2 million tonnes uh, to 368 million tonnes in 2019, and that's an 8,300% increase. Now, production trends are predicted to double again based on 2016 baselines up to 2040. Um, and it's, it's precisely this production and consumption pattern that's fueled this relentless convenience lifestyle that produces the enormous and unnecessary uh, quantities uh, of waste. So when we look at the international trade in plastic waste, really it's just a secondary symptom of this wider problem, uh, which is high income, high consuming countries are producing far more plastic waste than they know what to do with. And so in reality, the, the, the waste management infrastructure in, in these high income, high exporting countries in particular has become structurally dependent on offshoring waste overseas. And in doing so, avoids the direct social and environmental impacts of their plastic problem. So who are the most prolific exporters of plastic waste and, and where is it actually headed to? Where is it going? So plastic waste trade records began in 1988. Reliable data on plastic waste exports only really began in 92. And what we found is that more than a quarter of a billion tonnes of plastic waste has been legally traded around the world since then. The biggest exporters, like Tom said, are high-income, high-consuming countries, with the United States of America, Japan, Germany, and the United Kingdom being the largest over the last 30 years, we'd say. In 2020, the 10 largest exporters were Germany, Japan, the USA, UK, Netherlands, France, Belgium, Italy, Mexico, and Slovenia, who together exported 4,668,103 tonnes of plastic in one year. Um, since the 1990s, the global trade has relied really heavily on a single importer, that's China. They received up to 72% of the world's plastic during this 30-year time period. 
Um, in 2018, China banned the importation of most plastics. This is known as the national sword policy. We have noticed a slight decrease in exports since then, but the trade is still very significant. And since this ban, major exporting countries have been scrambling to find new destinations for their waste. In 2020, the largest importers were Malaysia, Turkey, Vietnam, the US, China, but that's also including Hong Kong, Indonesia, as well as a number of other uh, countries in the Asian continent, like Taiwan, Thailand, and the Republic of Korea. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. But also, and also that, that's, that trend sort of carried over into 2020, which where, um, you know, Germany, Japan and the US have continued to lead that global plastic waste export market, which is closely followed, like you say, by the UK, um, uh, a number of European countries um, and Mexico. Um, and certainly the worst culprit in terms of exports to non-OECD. OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is uh, 38 state uh, states, countries, uh, which are generally have a high human development index and are generally considered to be economically developed. Um, the worst culprit sending to countries which are not on that list, so generally the lower to middle income countries that have less waste management infrastructure, less enforcement capacity, is Japan, who in 2020 sent 92% of their exports to non-OECD countries. Oh, that's a hell of a lot of plastic to be moving around the world at any time. Uh, what, what are the key yes. impacts of this trade on the environment? Well, I suppose the precise contribution of the plastic waste trade business to global plastic pollution is kind of unknown. Um, but it's clearly significant based on the discrepancies between the sheer scale of the plastic waste trade and the ability for importing countries to deal with the waste responsibly. And, and this is quite obvious when we look at installed recycling capacity versus domestic waste generation and, and imports. So we look at Malaysia, for example, it has an installed recycling capacity of just over five, 515,000 tonnes per year. But now it imports, on average, 835,000 tonnes of plastic waste each year. And, and that doesn't even take into consideration an estimated 2.4 million tonnes uh, that are produced uh, domestically. So we can see these enormous discrepancies between what can be responsibly uh, managed um, and, and, uh, and, and how much is actually uh, produced and imported. And we can also tell that by looking at the waste of plastic waste mismanagement, which is the rate at which plastic is treated um, non-formally, I guess, uh, either in the open environment or openly burnt. Um, and, and these high importing countries are, are um, uh, have some of the highest mismanagement rates in, in, in the country. But I suppose the impacts themselves can broadly be be sort of categorized into, into three main uh, three main groups. The first is the environmental uh, impact. The second is um, the the social uh, and the human impact, and and the final is the sort of uh, economic um, the economic impact. Uh, so if we start off with the environmental impacts, I mean we've got land and water quality degradation. We've got toxic chemicals from informal dump sites leaching into the environment, which then we now know can um, infiltrate. Human food chain. Um, we could also talk about air pollution, biodiversity loss, loss of livelihoods, um, and then when we talk about the social impacts, you know, we've got exposure to toxic chemicals, like I say, food chain contamination. It's also a maritime safety issue because 
injury and even death can be caused uh, for maritime workers through blocked intakes and entangled propellers and collision with larger debris items. Um, it, it worsens natural disasters, uh, flash floods, hurricanes, tsunamis and communities which have poor waste, waste management, uh, spreads waterborne diseases. Um, and when we move on to the economic impacts, you know, it's not only the loss of livelihoods, the contamination of soil, the contamination of, of, of coastal uh, of coastal ecosystems in in, uh, in countries which are dominated uh, in some respects by by primary industry. We also have corruption, tax, and, and money laundering because the trade in plastic waste is characterised by a complete lack of accountability and a complete lack of transparency. Uh, transparency, which is increasingly linked, as Interpol have identified, to organised crime and trafficking networks. Um, so the illegal trade is, is associated with other forms of crime and, and, and sort of serves to further destabilise uh, importing, importing countries. You're talking there about the um, issue with um, poor regulation and, and very little control. Um, how exactly is the global trade currently regulated, or, or rather, maybe how is it supposed to be regulated? I can touch upon that if you want, Paul. Um, just quickly Please. going back to Tom's point, I think he put it very succinctly, but what this is, is a very serious environmental justice issue that's gaining a lot more traction, and it's a form of waste colonialism, and it's something that we have seen happening for a number of years with other kinds of wastes. Um, and that brings us quite nicely to how plastic waste is currently regulated. So at the global level, uh, it's regulated by the Basel Convention, which controls the transboundary movements of hazardous wastes and their disposal. So there are 188 parties to the convention. So these are countries that are signatory to it. It was adopted in 1989. And this was followed by public outcry after the discovery in the 1980s in Africa and other parts of the world where there were to toxic waste deposits that had been imported from abroad. And this all coincided with an increase in environmental awareness and the subsequent creation of environmental regulations in certain parts of the world like the UK and Europe in the 70s and 80s which led to increasing public resistance to the disposal of hazardous wastes. Um, essentially, this is known as NIMBY syndrome, not in my backyard syndrome, where there was an escalation of disposal costs because folk didn't want it occurring next to them. And what this resulted in was in some operators looking for cheaper or less regulated disposal options for hazardous waste in other parts of the world. So as a consequence to that, the convention was created and it entered into force in 1992. Since then, there have been a number of developments and milestones, including the convention now looking at other waste streams and waste management for recovery, which is uh, known as recycling and reprocessing and not just disposal. So the most recent and topical uh, changes being the very recent adoption of the plastic waste amendments. Um, there are a number of these amendments, but the ones that we're going to be talking about includes control procedures for certain types of plastic waste. This is also known as prior informed consent or PIC. And this is where a receiving country has to consent to importing the plastic waste prior to it being shipped because that wasn't previously in place. 
So very briefly, in a nutshell, as of January 1st of this year, plastic waste that is unsorted by polymer, so plastic polymer, so it's mixed, or if it's contaminated and it's not destined for recycling, so long as it's not hazardous, it needs prior informed consent before it's shipped. Hazardous plastic waste needs prior informed consent before it's shipped, and it's also banned from non-OECD countries. And then plastic waste that's sorted by a polymer is almost free from contamination and is destined for recycling, uh, so long as it's not hazardous. So, you know, the kind of material that produces higher quality recyclate, that has free movement. It doesn't require prior informed consent. So if these procedures are effectively implemented, it could really change the dynamics and the economics of the plastic waste trade. It, bring, it could bring increased transparency because it's currently incredibly opaque and hard to track and manage. Um, and it's placing increased control in the hands of importing countries where it wasn't previously. Um, and just very briefly, in addition to this, there are a number of other regional and national regulations managing trade as well. At the regional level, you have the EU waste shipment regulation, for instance, which is currently in the process of being revised. And I wanted to use this one as an example and bring it up because they've transposed the Basel plastic pick amendments in a way where they've actually gone beyond the current convention for plastic shipments outside of the EU. So they've banned any unsorted mixed plastic waste being sent to non-OECD countries. But at the same time, they've not fully transposed it internally. So PIC, prior informed consent procedures, are not implemented for any intra-European plastic waste trade shipments or sales. That's a really good overview. I suppose all I would sort of emphasise on top of that is just, you know, before the Basel amendments, before the amendments to the Basel Convention, uh, the global trade in plastic waste was basically completely unregulated. Whenever you trade in plastic waste, you have to assign it uh, a certain code, a certain export code, and those codes correspond to the annexes within the convention. And so there was only one code for all of plastic waste, basically, before the Basel Amendments came into force, which was on the 1st of January 2021. So it was a wild west, you know, before that. And and now we've got these now we've got these amendments. It, it's an incredible victory, and it should be celebrated as such. Um, but as Lauren touched upon, unless they're unless they're properly implemented um, in all the key importing and exporting countries, um, then they, they're just not going to be uh, effective. And similarly, all the amendments are is just a notification procedure. So it doesn't restrict necessarily uh, any trade. It just it just means that anyone that wants to export waste has to get the prior informed consent of the country that's receiving it. It sounds as if the official legal trade in plastic waste is, is problematic enough. Um, but I understand that since China's um, national sword um, policy in 2018 stopped it receiving um, plastic waste from elsewhere in the world, that the actual um, illegal trade in plastic waste has risen significantly since then. What's happening to all the plastic moved around the planet by environmental criminals where's that ending up that's a very very good question paul and um i suppose i suppose we, we could go back to uh in interpol which is sort of the uh interstate uh policing agency and they did a report back in in 2018 and, and essentially what they did was they identified the main trafficking routes at that time directly after the uh 
directly after China shut its borders in 2018. And they found 11 countries in, in Asia uh, which, which had seen a sharp rise in the rates of the illegal trade, most likely as a direct result of China shutting its borders. And this is, this is uh, Cambodia, India, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, uh, Pakistan, uh, Thailand, Vietnam particularly as well. Um, and, and in Europe as well, seven countries were identified as having as being most affected by the illegal uh, plastic waste trade in the region, uh, namely the Czech Republic, uh, Germany, Italy, Poland, Portugal, Romania and Turkey. But overall, it's, it's countries in Southeast Asia and South Asia and, and uh, uh, which have borne the brunt of the growing illegal trade in plastic as, as, as shipments from predominantly Europe and North America have been diverted uh, due to China's China's import ban, and when we look globally at the uh, the single countries that have seen the biggest rise, it's Malaysia and Thailand uh, since China shut its borders, which you know by no coincidence are sit adjacently to China, um, and and these are countries that have also Malaysia and Th Thailand are also countries that became the biggest importers of plastic waste, full stop, legal trade in two thousand and eighteen. So it's kind of without doubt that some of these emerging Asian destinations are being exploited by organised criminals uh, to to uh, to hide um, to hide plastic waste in far flung corners of the world. I appreciate it. It's probably not impossible to slap a hard figure on a clandestine trade, but. Have you got any indication as to the scale of legal trade? Um, I mean, it's it's incredibly, yeah, it's a great question, Paul. It's incredibly difficult to come to definitive figures just because the the plastic waste trade in many respects is like a black hole, um, a black hole of, of, of hidden actors and uh, veiled bank accounts um, and clandestine activity. Um, and so... The best figures that we have available really are that in the EU, the illegal trade is worth about 15 billion euros annually. But that's just in the European Union, uh, you know, and even that is a sort of conservative estimate. Um, for, for reading your recent report, um, there, there does seem to be a growing number of countries that are actually taking the, the, the ball by the horns, as it were, and introducing national restrictions. Mm. Is, is it mostly the importing countries, um, those, those, if you like, that are actually having the plastic? tipped upon their doorstep to deal with uh, are doing this. That's exactly right. Uh, so since China's national sword policy in 2018, other destination countries that have emerged have been putting in place stricter restrictions to protect themselves from this harmful trade. So you've got India has a plastic waste trade prohibition. Thailand has a temporary prohibition. Then Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, Turkey, and Vietnam have put in stricter import requirements, like strict contamination thresholds, or prohibiting certain types of plastic, or transshipment of plastic, which is the movement of shipments between lots of different countries and waste brokers and dealers before arriving at the importing country, because it's um, easy to lose track of a shipment in that way. Um, and the reason that they've put these specific requirements in place is because typically the barriers to transparency and accountability are linked to that. It's a very fragmented market without any overarching value chain coordination. So the lower the value or the obligations associated with the plastic waste stream, so if it's less likely 
it's less likely to be closely managed. So lower grade, less valuable plastic waste that's highly contaminated or mixed tends to be exported, um, but also tends to have a lower value um, and profits could be made from it. So it contributes to a higher level of mismanagement because there's less to gain from it. Um, so for instance, uh, for Malaysia, as of December 2020, plastic waste imports are allowed if they can contribute towards upgrading the local recycling industry. Uh, but there are a number of criteria that need to be met. So that includes green listed plastic waste. This is plastic waste that doesn't require prime form consent procedure, like it's low contamination, destined for recycling. It's been mixed, uh, sorted by polymer rather, sorry. Um, the waste needs to be separated um, and sorted. Uh, there can't be any um, contamination that exceeds 5% by weight of the plastic that's being shipped. And 95% of the amount of importing plastic waste is recyclable by weight. And not only that, the exporter must be approved in writing by the Department of National Solid Waste Management um, before it's supplied and it's sent over. But what's very interesting is that major exporting countries are typically lagging behind and are not responsibly managing their waste shipments and their impacts, despite it being their waste in the first place, and despite it being their waste that they're unable to manage in the first place. So it's a fairly age-old age old situation where the person or the individual or the country creating the problem is the last one to want to tackle it. It just wants to outsource the problem to somewhere else, I guess, and then not have to deal with it. Exactly. And we're, we're, we're seeing some somewhat troubling developments where there's a little action that's occurring, but it's not really addressing the problem in full. So in 2020, Japan put in place plastic waste export guidelines, for instance, for exported waste, but they don't include contamination limits and they don't control include controls on halogenated plastics like PVC, which are harmful. Then you've got the UK. It's going to consult on banning plastic waste shipments to non-OECD countries before the end of next year. But currently, Turkey is the biggest importer of UK plastic waste, and that's an OECD country. So it wouldn't fall under the remit of this ban. And you've got Australia has put in place a plastic waste export ban, but that doesn't include any plastic that's been sorted or any plastic that will be used to be processed into engineered fuel, which is energy from waste. And then you've got the US, which isn't even a party to the Basel Convention and requires a separate bilateral agreement that meets certain criteria if they want to trade their plastic waste with other countries like they've got with Canada and Mexico currently, for instance. It's, it seems to me it's, it's a very patchwork kind of response from the different parties involved. Um, there's no clear... Um, kind of coordinated strategy um, to tackle this, which kind of brings me to the $64,000 question. Um, given the staggering scale of plastic production and pollution that the world is currently experiencing, what do you think is the most effective and viable solution? What do we actually need to do to get a grip on this problem? I think I'd like to go back to sort of some of the first points that we made, um, which is that, you know, the global trade in plastic waste is, is, a, is a terrible uh, an insidious threat to human and environmental health, but it is at the same time only a secondary symptom of a much sort of wider problem, um, and that is overproduction and overconsumption of, of plastic materials and plastic products. 
the plastic waste problem won't be fixed um, or it will be solved, I should say, by sort of shipping it around the world and searching for hiding places for it, you know, despite that devastating human and environmental impact. Um, what will work um, is for UN member states to implement a really ambitious pack of package of binding measures at the global level, transposed to the national level, um, that will promote resource efficiency and a safe circular economy for plastics, but principally to significantly reduce plastic waste generation, scale up reuse and re refill models. At the moment, we're producing around 400 million tons of plastic a year, 50% of that is single use. It doesn't make sense to be uh, prospecting for raw materials, extracting the raw material, refining it into a petrochemical, turning it into a plastic, then turning it into a plastic product to be used once and then thrown away. That simply doesn't work and it's also completely unsustainable. So in order to achieve this sort of global vision of, of resource efficiency, reduced waste generation, Governments need to support a new treaty. They need to support the establishment of an intergovernmental negotiating committee uh, to negotiate a new plastics treaty um, under the UN Environment Assembly framework. Uh, the UN Environment Assembly will meet in February next year in 2022. Um, and it's hoped that countries will engage fully uh, to secure caps on virgin plastic production and standards on product design in order to achieve that, that sort of um, that ambitious vision. But certainly in the meantime, uh, the plastic waste trade should be, uh, at the global level, should be more heavily restricted through the Basel Convention. This would include banning waste exports to non-OECD countries. So this is non-highly uh, developed, uh, you say, uh, countries normally in the global south. Those, those shipments should be banned as a matter of urgency. And similarly, prior informed consent, as Lauren was mentioning, so this uh, these amendments, which mean that countries need to seek approval uh, from the importing country before they before they offshore their waste. Uh, there should be no loopholes for that. And at the moment, there is. There's a couple of loopholes which allows uh, plastic waste to be uh, exported without any controls whatsoever. And those, those, uh, those loopholes should be closed. Lauren, have you got any? I'm sure you've got some. I mean, definitely, I I could come in from the national level perspective um and that it's really quite simple there are three major things to look and do like tom said the first is to ban plastic waste exports that high producing high income countries that are exporting all of this just need to take responsibility for their waste and treat it the second is to address the larger issue at hand that tom also spoke about which is the fact that we are consuming incredibly high levels of plastic. So it's to enact strong national policy measures to reduce plastic waste. And that comes in the form of many different instruments. You need consistent waste collection. You need extended producer responsibility. You need deposit return schemes. You need plastic packaging taxes with increasing recycling content obligations to create a strong market for recycled plastic. You need plastic and single-use item reduction targets and product reuse targets. And importantly, you need incineration and landfilling moratoriums so that when the waste isn't being exported, it doesn't in turn just get burnt. It's managed responsibly and in an environmentally sound manner. And the last thing would be to address 
illegal shipments. And for that, what we need is to ensure traceability and transparency. We need access to real-time data. We need to improve inspections and enforcement. And like Tom said, we need prior informed consent for all shipments, not just the small cohort that's currently taking place. I mean, I, I gather you and your colleagues in, in, in our ocean campaign have been working really hard over the past 18 months or so in the vanguard, if you will, of, of getting um, different countries around the world to sign up to the principle and the concept um, of a global treaty to tackle plastics. What kind of signs are you getting? Um, uh, is there an encouraging response? So is it a, a sort of dragging people kicking and screaming towards the treaty or people actually seeing the scale of the problem and prepared to sign up voluntarily? Yes, that's a really good um Another full of questions. Good questions. <laughs> um, I suppose. I suppose we could go back to the inception of when a when a treaty was first sort of conceptualised, which is several years ago now, around five years, and it started off as a as a dream, you know, as a dream of a, of a handful of uh, civil society organisations such as ourselves, EIA, um, and, and a number of others, uh, along with a couple of states. And it was a dream, and that dream turned into an ambition when we realised that really this is kind of what we need at the global level in order to sort of really get a handle on this problem. If we're if we're serious about tackling the plastic pollution problem, we need global legally binding rules to level the playing field. And so that dream turned into an ambition, and then that ambition is slowly evolved into uh, into something which is looking quite likely. Um, at the moment, we have about 150 countries. Uh, that have expressed some level of support for uh, a global uh, legally binding response to the plastic pollution problem. Uh, there are a number of countries which are quite unclear or they're not sure. Um, there's some countries which are, uh, I wouldn't say stalling progress necessarily, um, but have a diff slightly different vision, a less ambitious vision on what should be achieved, notably the United States, Japan, for example. So at the moment we have sort of two camps kind of forming. We've got one camp which is sort of quite ambitious, looking at sort of a very broad mandate for that negotiating committee that can address production and consumption in alignment with the sustainable development agenda of the UN. And then we've also got kind of a kind of another camp joining, uh, forming, which is looking for much less ambitious action and would essentially allow countries to pick and choose the measures that they would want to implement. Um, which is just sort of simply not going to work, uh, but we are confident that we have we have that um, sort of that critical mass of support now from states uh, in order to secure what we think we need to secure at UNEA next February. Well, that's most encouraging to hear. So, on behalf of everybody else that's listening, thanks you guys and your colleagues for pushing it so far already, and um, here's to a success down the line. Tom, Lauren, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks, Paul. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at aia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there. <laughs>